Hey everyone, Ellie here. My new podcast, Up Against the Mob, is about my time taking on the mafia as head of the organized crime unit at the Southern District of New York. Each episode comes with a bonus segment exclusively for members of Cafe Insider, where I take listeners behind the scenes at the SDNY and provide a window into the life of a mob prosecutor. Today, we're sharing the Insider bonus for episode one for free in this feed. To listen to all the bonus episodes and access other exclusive content, become a member at cafe.com slash insider. And for a limited time, use the discount code MOB, that's M-O-B, to get 50% off the annual membership price. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider, and the discount code is MOB. Thanks for listening to Up Against the Mob, and now on to the insider bonus for episode one. Welcome to the first of our bonus episodes for Up Against the Mob with Ellie Honig. My name is Safina McClay. I am a recovering law student that you might remember from third degree. And before we get into the first bonus episode, and today we'll be talking about your interview with Michael Visconti, I wanted to ask you and take a step back why you wanted to share these stories, what it is that you hope people will learn, why the mob? Why now? So let me let me take the why the mob part of that, because I think I can answer all your questions by addressing that one. So the way it works in the Southern District of New York is your first two years in the office are set in stone. Your first year, you're in general crimes, which we used to say was like the freshman dorm, like you're all on the same dingy floor together in tiny offices, and you get the smaller federal cases. Your second year, you graduate up to narcotics, where you start doing bigger cases and wiretaps and that kind of thing. And then at the end of your second year, you kind of have this moment of truth where the decision comes, which of the six or seven senior units are you going to go to? And I got to tell you, when I became chief of organized crime once, I did a panel for the new kids in the office where all the chiefs, one chief from each unit, um, had to tell why they went into the unit that they chose. And so, you know, the, the head of terrorism for example, got up and had a very easy pitch. Well, here we are a half mile away from World Trade Center and it means so much to me and we'll never forget that day. The chief of public corruption said, you know, so I'm sure something like I believe in our public officials should be should be free of conflicts and, and, and true and not corrupt and all that, you know, on and on. And it gets to me as chief of organized crime. And I just basically said, look, I got to be honest, I did it for the stories. You know, I did it because I saw what was being done in that office. I would go over, I would sneak over to the courtroom and watch the older people in the office do mob trials. And it felt like watching the movies. It felt like watching The Sopranos or Goodfellas, um, only it was real. These people were real. And I just wanted to do that. And so why did I do it? I guess in a nutshell for the stories and for the human drama of it. And that's why, and I think that comes through on this podcast. Absolutely. I mean, you've said that prosecuting the mob in real life is better than the movies and better than the shows. <laughs> and I think that totally comes across in these episodes. I, I stand by that. I think that this proves that. Um, there's a lot of moments in these podcasts, including with Michael, that I think are, are better than anything uh, you would ever see on TV. Well, before we get to Michael, it sounds like an amazing job and amazing work. Do you ever miss it? Oh, good question. Um, no, but I think part of that is a function of I just enjoy what I'm doing now so much. But also, I feel like I, I did almost everything that there was to do. And, and candidly, when I when I did my you know ninth or 10th big mob case, I sort of felt like I had all the dance steps down at that point. 
So no, I think I, I, I'm, I'm very satisfied with my career and record as is, and I have no desire at the moment to go reopen that. Well, I think that's good career advice for those <laughs> like me leaving law school. When you feel like you kind of figured it out, maybe it's time to do something new. Yeah, not to say I had everything figured out, but it did yeah. begin to feel <laughs> a bit rote and a bit sort of um, step-by-step. So yeah. Well, if you want, we can jump into episode one. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Right away, you start the podcast talking about how out on the street, if someone like ran into you, (laughs) no mobster would probably be afraid of you, just like walking around. But how about you? When you were doing this, were you scared? Was your family scared? That is a great question. And and probably the one question that I'm asked most commonly, it doesn't matter what I'm talking about, by the way, if I'm talking about my book, which is about the Justice Department, someone always asked me that. No, I'm, I don't cut a particularly intimidating figure on the streets. Um, was I ever scared? You know, the short answer is no, oddly. I think counterintuitively, part of it was just you can't be. If you're going to be scared, you're not going to survive in that particular job. But, but part of it also goes to sort of the mob's own rules. Now, I talk about this a bit with Michael and with some of the other guests coming up in later weeks. But the mob has their own rules. Now, they break them, of course, because they're mobsters. But one of the ones that they really don't mess with is the rule that you don't mess with prosecutors or judges. And the reason for that rule is not because they're good or decent people. The reason for that rule is because it's bad for business, right? They are allergic to what they call heat, right? The worst thing they can do is draw attention of law enforcement. And can you think of a better way to do that than to threaten or, God forbid, do worse to a judge or a prosecutor? And the other thing is, Let's say they did something to me. Let's say they eliminated me. That doesn't make the case go away. If it did, if it did, I'd probably be dead a lot of times over. But they would just plug in the next version of me and high holy hell would rain down on them from the entirety of the Justice Department and the FBI. So it was bad business. I always sort of understood that. I did have thoughts once in a while about some of the true psychos, like, I don't know, would they maybe try something? But I'm kind of good at um, partitioning thoughts like that out of my head. And did you sort of prep your family for the work that you were doing? I know your wife may have already been aware of sort of this code in, in organized crime, but were they scared? You know, my mom being a Jewish mom was is always scared. <laughs> um, so uh, that's kind of her job. My wife, as you mentioned, Safina, is a prosecutor as well. And she she didn't do organized crime cases, but she's done some cases against some dangerous people, some vengeful people. So she fully understood. Um, and she also, I think, understood that it, it's really, really, really rare for anybody, any prosecutor to have some sort of, sort of physical, you know, attack or retribution from any defendant. So, so I think she was on the same wavelength as me. Well, that's good. I know my mom would be terrified, yeah. but she also, as an Indian mom, has that similar fear of everything out in the world for me. There's a lot of overlap in the ethic of the Jewish and Indian <laughs> mother. Yes, for sure. Exactly. Well, I wanted to switch to talking about some of your skills in the role. In law school, we read a ton of cases and books about the law, but we don't get a lot of training on the actual skills that you need to do the job. And you talked about being particularly skilled at flipping informants. And even though I graduated and it's behind me, I am still in school mode. And I'm so curious about what the homework is like for flipping informants, both How do you get good at the strategy for that? And what do you need to know about a person to be good at flipping that person? Gosh, that's a great question. And, you know, Michael talks about this in the episode and he says, and, you know, I didn't really ever know this specifically. I always suspected it. But he says in the episode that he was a maybe on cooperating until he met me. And, you know, it's not because I'm some overwhelming figure or anything like that. 
you referenced one of the key things, which is homework, right? You have to know everything about the cooperator and nothing impresses them more than if you know their story cold, right? And you can roll with them. And by the way, after a, a certain amount of time, you get to know the other players. You get to know even the neighborhoods, the geography, which bakery they would go to. And when you can drop something like that in, they go, oh, all right, this guy knows what's going on. You have to think about where the vulnerability sits because every cooperator has a different incentive. I mean, Michael was a little bit unusual because a lot of the cooperators I flipped were guys looking at murder charges and life in prison. Not Michael. Remember, he was only looking at this extortion charge. So my memory of the way I approached Michael was I understood that he was a smart guy, a rational guy. As he talked about, he wasn't raised in the mob tradition. He was raised in a what they call a, a legitimate family. He had at the time, and he talks about this young kids. He had he had, was fairly recently married. And so I appealed to that. Now, I didn't say to him, oh, your family is going to, you know, suffer or anything like that. And this is my approach. There's sort of, there was two ways to do this at the SDNY. There was the aggressive way. And I saw people do this where I saw one guy in particular, I won't say his name, but SDNY people will probably figure out who this was. But where he would just get in people's faces and he was sort of a big guy and, you know, pumped iron and all that. And he would just go, uh, if you don't flip, I'm going to fucking make your life miserable and you'll go back to jail and rot and I'll go out and eat a steak and I won't ever think about you again. And, you know, that kind of stuff. That didn't work for me. Um, I never tried it. Um, it didn't work for me. That doesn't sound like you. <laughs> well, that's part of it, right? I mean, it would be ridiculous if I tried to put on that act. And so my approach was, there's, there's nothing about you or me or that guy I referenced that's going to actually frighten a defendant. But you know what they're scared to death of? The sentencing guidelines and the mandatory minimums, right? And so I would just do it very straightforward and I would do it in a respectful way. But my tone would be similar to how I'm talking to you now, Safina. I would just say to them, look, you're here because you're trying to cooperate. That's good. I think you. I think there's a lot of important information we need from you. If you do this the right way, meaning if you tell us everything and you play no games, then you stand to benefit. And if you don't, that's fine. You can go back and maybe you'll go to trial. Maybe you'll plead guilty and your lawyer can explain to you sort of what the odds are there, what you're looking at. But it's your choice, but don't do this unless you're ready to come 100% clean because that's going to be bad for you and bad for me. And that was really it. It was very, you know, the more matter of fact, the more just business, not personal you can make it, the more effective it was in my experience. That sounds super persuasive to me. And like, you didn't have to go and make these sort of threats or be super accusatory or aggressive. And you sort of alluded to this, but I'm curious about what the ethics are of that. Are there things you couldn't do or say to get somebody to flip or was everything fair game and it's just a choice of strategy? Yeah, so there's not a handbook on this. <laughs> this is not addressed in the justice manual that we are all given. You know, the way I was always taught and the way I did it was you wouldn't lie to a person. You wouldn't say, look, if you don't flip, I'm going to charge so-and-so, maybe your father-in-law, maybe someone you were close with on the streets, unless you actually are going to do that. I didn't believe in making a threat or a suggestion that I wasn't ready to back up. I wouldn't lie to these guys. I would give it to them fairly straight, right? I mean, I wouldn't bring them in until I was confident that I had the goods on them anyway. There were times when I took a shot on somebody who I didn't really have the goods on, but I wouldn't, in that case, I wouldn't say, you know, we're gonna charge you or we're gonna, I'm pretty confident we'll convict you if we have to. The ethics, you know, I guess there's a gray area and there are times when people are worried about their families. I can tell you that, like where a father was involved in something, an uncle was involved in something. The way I dealt with that was I said, look, the worst thing you can do is to withhold information. If there's somebody out there that you want to protect, don't lie to me. Don't 
leave somebody out of a story. That was somewhat common, right? Where a cooperator would have committed a crime with A, B, C, and D and not mention D. He would tell me about A, B, and C, right? And I would just tell them, if you have someone like that, just pause. I'll leave the room. You can talk to your lawyer and we can work it out. And if it's somebody that we can give a pass to or give some consideration to, then I'm open to that possibility, but it depends on, you know what I mean? Like, so I would never overpromise. I would never sort of overpuff myself. I always found that was sort of the best way to do it. That seems to me like totally the right way to do it, to give them the opportunity to think through things about the consequences, to be honest about the consequences. Um, so, th- so that makes a lot of sense. As far as another ethical dilemma that I kept thinking about during the episode is you play some really interesting recordings from actual conversations that mobsters obviously thought were private. And um, I know some of our listeners, many of whom probably watched The Wire and have heard of these before, but I know many of our listeners might be wondering about how these recordings are legal. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So generally speaking, there there are a few ways you can get a recording like that. One is a wiretap, right? Where, you know, old school, yeah, you have an agent, uh, an FBI agent listening in on a set of headphones to phone conversations. You have to go to a judge. A judge has to approve that. It's a whole internal procedure. The problem with the mob is you're, you're almost never going to get anything off a of phone because the real bosses don't talk on phones at all. The guys who do are so cryptic. It's just like, Hey, the thing that the, is the thing that we talked about. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. You know, like it's all like they barely talk on phones or even on emails and texts. Um, although they only started adopting that sort of, you know, a long time after the rest of us, the other way to make the tapes. And these are the tapes that you heard in the episode is by wiring up. And I put that in quotes because we no longer use actual wires, right? Like in the movies where they rip a guy's shirt open and he's got wires taped to his chest. You don't do it that way, but we still call it wiring up. You get an informant or a cooperator to wear a wire um, and to secretly record his conversations with other guys. And that is lawful. You don't need a judge's permission to do that as long as one of the parties consents to recording that conversation in New York, at least. I think I remember my like criminal procedure professor framing it as you don't really have rights against having a friend who's distrustful. Like yeah. you have no rights to ensure that your friend isn't cooperating with the government, for example. Absolutely. Right. I mean, if you're, you know, you're going to have these conversations. And by the way, one thing I was taught early on as a prosecutor, very, very early on, I remember the U.S. attorney saying to us, just assume every conversation you have is being recorded. I actually found that's pretty good, uh, pretty good life advice. I will definitely keep that. <laughs> After hearing these clips, I was like, okay, I should be a little more careful about what I'm saying on the street. Yeah, yeah. We're not recording this, are we? I, I We might be. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, let's just make sure it doesn't get out there. <laughs> I was wondering, in this system of sort of flipping somebody and making a deal, do you ever worry that somebody's not telling you the truth? I mean, you mentioned you give people a moment to kind of check in with their lawyer, make sure they're telling you the whole story, but are you ever concerned that people are are sort of falsely ratting someone else out in order to get the benefit of a deal? I think my answer is you always have to be concerned about that from the moment you start cooperation all the way through to, you know, there's times, and you could hear some of this sort of rapport between Michael and me, you know, when you spend a lot of time with a guy, you end up in that kind of relationship. But even then, even when you get comfortable with somebody like I did with Michael and maybe five or six other guys, you still have to have your guard up as a prosecutor. Now, let me break that down for for a second. So first of all, you have to do your homework, like I said before, and these guys know you've done your homework. And 
They know that you're talking to a million other cooperators, informants. You have other wiretaps. So I always explain that to them. Like, let's not do this game of you try to fudge some details and hope I don't know. Because maybe I do and maybe I don't. But if I do, it's over. Like, we have to rip up this this cooperation agreement. And that's the worst possible thing for you because you'll already have pled guilty. Have I seen the situation where, I, as I talked about before, where a cooperator leaves out somebody they don't want to implicate? Yes. That was, I don't want to say common, but I definitely caught that happening a handful of times. Now, the far worse scenario is what you said, Safina, just now, where a cooperator would falsely implicate somebody. I have never seen that. I've never seen that in a cooperator who I've signed up. I had a couple incidents in various situations where somebody was trying to cooperate, not even in the mob context, and included somebody who I didn't believe or I knew was not involved or I didn't think was involved or I wasn't convinced was involved. That's an immediate game over, right? I'm not even gonna entertain that, right? So I've never followed through and actually cooperated somebody or put on a witness where I had any reason to think that they were putting somebody into a case. I mean, that's about the worst thing you could ever do as a prosecutor, right? So Mm -hmm. I was very much on guard for that. And I I think that's far, far less common than than the opposite scenario of falsely leaving somebody out. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like it it goes to the core of the skill of all of this work, which is being able to read people and to be able to make judgments about whether they're being honest, whether they're being open, but then also looking to other cooperators, to other evidence to make sure that you're getting sort of truthful information. And and let me give you an example of that that I think goes beyond what Michael and I talked about. You know, some of that is just gut instinct, right? That you develop over time as a prosecutor. A lot of that is having done your homework and knowing the details. But I would always look for this. I would always look for, did I have a cooperator who was willing to say no to me, right? And I'll give you an example. We allude to this in the episode. Michael had some information about this 1992 murder that Angelo Prisco was involved in, right? And it was way before Michael's time. He obviously had nothing to do with it. Michael was probably like a teenager at the time or something. But he had he had heard a couple of snippets about it. But I remember asking him, and a lot of the questions I asked him, he just said, I just don't know that, or I can't say that. Or, you know, even I even think I said, did Angelo ever talk to you about this murder? Now, if he was just trying to please me, he could have been like, oh, yeah, Angelo said he killed a lot of people. But Michael said, I got to be honest, he, he never talked to me about that. I heard it from other folks. And, you know, I had a couple snippets, but no, not from him. And to me, that was really persuasive. And there's another case, in fact, this will be a future episode, where I had a cooperator who was testifying against the boss and the cooperator had done various murders and attempted murders. And he said, the boss ordered me to do this one and that one, but this third one, he didn't know about. I just did that one with other people sort of on the side. And when I heard that, I just thought, okay, that is credible, right? He's not just trying to crush this guy and or, or trying to make me happy, whatever he thinks might make me happy, or just trying to sort of load up everything on the guy. And, and Michael showed all of those hallmarks. And I think you can see him in the episode as well. There are times when Michael said, no, nah, it wasn't quite like that. Um, and to me, that was always a, a really good indicator of credibility. Definitely. And you definitely hear that in the episode. It comes through. Um, Well, we're nearing the end of our time together, and I wanted to end on a question that you asked Michael that I wanted to ask you, which is, what do you tell your kids about this part of your life? I love that question. I, You know, and that's the kind of question that, like, I loved asking Michael because we had, you know, this was kind of my opportunity to ask Michael all the things I always wanted to ask him but never quite could. And tell him some things, right? I told him the story about the judge, which he apparently had, he had never heard before. You could hear he was shocked by that. What did we tell our kids? And remember, this is a two-prosecutor parent household. 
we were always, my wife and I were, and to an extent are always very open and candid with our kids. I mean, they were probably, when I did that case with, with Michael, gosh, they were probably like five and three or six and four or something. We wouldn't tell them all the details, but definitely at probably too early in age, we started to explain what a trial was, right? Like why mom or dad is going to be late for the next few weeks because we caught a guy, a criminal and he says he didn't do it. And we say he did and a jury and all that. Later on, I started to tell, especially my son, who's the older one, a bit about the mob and explain to them what the mob was. And, you know, murders and robbery, probably stuff that's not super appropriate. The only thing I wouldn't ever tell them about was home invasions, which as you heard, Michael was involved in because I didn't want them being scared, you know, for their own safety. But one thing we would always stress to them is like, these are just mobsters and they only do it to other mobsters. They don't do anything, you know, but my kids were never afraid of that or anything. So I guess the short answer is we told our kids way too much at way too early of an age. (laughs) And when my son like finally watched Goodfellas with me, which again was probably like way too young in his life, he was probably 11 or 12. He was kind of like right with me as I was critiquing it or saying that wouldn't happen or whatever. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know, why would that, why would they do it that way? So my kids know a lot more about criminal law and crimes than your average kid does. But I, I think we just made a decision that it's easier to sort of be straight with them. And, you know, we, again, we, 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 we filtered out certain stuff, but, um, I was, we were probably too candid with them, but they turned out all right. So, well, I've met them and they definitely turned out all right. And they had the best entertainment at home. That wasn't Netflix or TV, just being able to talk to you both. And listen, for what it's worth. Oh, by the way, my daughter used to ask me at bedtime to tell her a story about a case. So I would tell her, I, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that in years, but I guess she got sort of a mini version of these podcasts. And I should say, as of this moment in 2021, my daughter, who's 14, wants to be an FBI agent. So uh, I, I think that's cool. That is awesome. I hope you enjoyed this free bonus content from the first episode of my new podcast, Up Against the Mob. If you'd like to hear more of these conversations, become a Cafe Insider for 50% off the annual membership price with the discount code MOB. That's M-O-B, MOB, at cafe.com slash insider. As always, thanks for listening and for supporting our work. That's it for this episode of Up Against the Mob. If you like what you heard, Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners to find the show. And as always, please send us your thoughts or questions to letters at cafe.com. Up Against the Mob is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ellie Honig. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tadashur. Music is by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Matt Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Special thanks to Nate White for his help with research. And special thanks to my interviewer, Safina Mekwai. I'm Ellie Honig, and this is Up Against the Mob. <laughs> <laughs>